The River Church is a beautiful kind of broken. We admit that we're broken people, that life brings so many challenges, and yet our Heavenly Father takes our brokenness and he turns it into something really beautiful. And so we've entitled this series in 1 Corinthians, This Beautiful Kind of Broken. And last week, Todd moved us into the second half, chapter 7. So I want to invite you to have your Bibles open. It's a chapter that talks about marriage and singleness and our sexuality. And Todd kicked it off with a focus more on marriage. And this morning, I want to kind of lean into what it means to be single in this whole conversation and context. And so we're in chapter 7 and verse 25. Paul says, now about virgins. And then he interjects, now I have your attention. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. In this second half of Corinthians, Paul is now responding to a letter that this fledgling little church in the city of Corinth had written to the apostle, the church planner, asking all sorts of questions about how do we order our lives as a new church, as a young church. And so Paul now is addressing those questions. There were some spiritual elites in the church that had been influenced by philosophical thinking of the sophists and the cynics and There was this narrative going on that if you really wanted to be spiritual, you wouldn't get married. And if you really wanted to be spiritual and you were married, well, you wouldn't have any sexual relations in that marriage. And Paul is responding to those concerns. And our big question is, how do we apply what we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 7 into our particular context in 2019? That's what I've been wrestling with in this text. So for all of us, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, widowed, whether we're single, never married, married again, I think Paul would have us focus on three things. And that's what I want to propose. It's on the outline. One, I think Paul wants us to grow in our spiritual discernment. And two, I think Paul wants us to get a new perspective. And three, I think Paul wants us to get free from the idol of marriage that our culture has turned it into. 
And that's what I'm going to unpack. You won't all agree with what I have to say, which is fine. It's good. I'm in process. I'm reading the scripture and asking, what does it mean? Our team, we wrestle together with the scripture. We talk about these issues. We don't always agree. And that's the process that we need to be about as a church, doing this whole process together. I want to provoke some conversation, some discussion. I might ask more questions than give propositions. And certainly, with all that's in chapter 7, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. In fact, there are so many sermons in my head, so much teaching I'd like to do, but we're not going to do that. That's not uh, uh, um, an option with the amount of time that we have uh, this morning. So, first thing, I think Paul, in reading this text, wants us as a church to grow in our spiritual discernment. That's certainly what he's pushing the Corinthian church toward. Notice verse 25. Now about virgins. Now that's a technical term for an unmarried woman who was likely betrothed to be married. And they're asking the question, should, should we go ahead and get married in this world in which we're living And what you see here, Paul saying, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I I love what Paul is doing here. This is so instructive for us in our conversations with one another. You you have um, the authority of Jesus. Paul keeps that front and center. What, what, What would Jesus tell us? What has Jesus been telling us? And then secondly, you have the discernment of Paul, who's an apostle, who, won, who, who, who acknowledges that over time he's become trustworthy. And then Paul is wrestling in engaging the setting in which he finds himself in Corinth. And, and friends, this is so important. When we read the scriptures, we have to ask the question, what was the cultural climate in which Paul was writing? These are not just propositions that are dropped down, moralisms, uh, commands dropped down out of heaven with, 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 with uh, no body, no, it, all disembodied. They're, they're, um, they're truth from God that we need to understand as we wrestle with what was happening in Corinth. So what we're doing here, what Paul is encouraging us to do when we think about marriage and singleness and sexuality is he's wanting us to grow up. He's wanting us to develop a sensitivity, a spiritual discernment. He's wanting us to think theologically. And to think theologically is basically just ask the question, what does God think about and then fill in the blank? And this morning, what does God think about the single life? And, 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 and Paul wants us to, to grow up and to practice that. So I want to suggest four things that Paul models that we can learn in terms of what we're growing up to do as a church family in our conversations about spiritual things, particularly about marriage, singleness, and our sexuality. The first is the authority of the scripture. We're a people of the book. And we go back to the Bible over and over again. We go back to the scriptures because we hold true that the Bible is our final source of authority. What does the scripture say? 
So we open up the Bible. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We teach the Bible. And we need to do that as a church family. The unchanging word in a changing world. We're people of the book. What does the Bible say? Secondly, we rely on guidance from the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that he, when he left, he would send us the Holy Spirit as a gift. The Spirit is a gift to us. The Spirit, who is God himself, he comes and he indwells the church. He comes and indwells our minds and our hearts. And we can listen to him. And Jesus said, he'll remind you of everything I taught you. And the Holy Spirit enlivens the scripture and enlivens our hearts and our minds to understand it and to apply. And this is so exciting because you can take the Bible and you can talk to the Holy Spirit and he will guide you and help you to make decisions and grow in your spiritual discernment. Third, lessons from history and tradition. This just means the people that have gone before us. And that's why we look to the past. That's why we read good books. That's why we ask the question, how did our forefathers deal with this? Now, sometimes they didn't deal with it very well. And so we've been corrective in the world in which we live. But we pay attention to how has the Holy Spirit guided the church over the years? And how can we learn from them? And then fourth, this is so vital. Fourth is discernment in community. Yes, sometimes you go on the mountain, you go on a prayer retreat, you have a time of solitude as a solo person, and the Holy Spirit guides you. But friends, when you're talking about these really tough issues, you do it in community. We talk to each other. We have those trusted friends over a cup of coffee, at a dinner table, in a small group or a Bible study where we say, this is what I see in the scripture. This is what the Holy Spirit is pushing on me. This is what I've learned over the years. What do you think? And we, we do this together. There's a part in Acts 15 where they were, the early church was wrestling with some very difficult issues. And their conclusion was framed as, um, uh, this seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We take these issues together as a church family. But there's a problem, and that is just like a fish swims in the ocean and may not even know that there's water around them and may not even know what's in the water that is part of their life. Sometimes we can swim in culture and we fail to acknowledge and recognize and remember the impact that culture is having on us. And that's what Paul is doing for us here. So we need to grow in our spiritual discernment. Have a relationship with God's word and don't just merely rely on a teacher, a pastor, a podcast, or a book. Read the scripture yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and help you. And then talk about it with other people so that you can say, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us this is my next step. But that's not all. Paul wants us also to gain a new perspective. A, a God-honored, a God-touched, a God-filtered perspective on the life that he's called you to live. And you notice in verse 26, Paul says, because of the present crisis, 
life brings us a crisis, it seems like, around every corner. Paul says in verse 29, hey, church, the time is short. Verse 31, he says, for this world in its present form is passing away. What Paul is telling us as a church, hey, know what time it is. What, what time is it? Where are we at in the historical timeline? Where are you at in the timeline of your life? And what is the cultural moment in which God has placed us right now? We, as followers of Jesus, are Advent people. And there's the first coming of Jesus. And history has been marked by the most significant, earth-shattering, life-challenging, changing moment. And that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this world has been wayward. It's gone its way. It said no to God. The world is broken. There's an infection into the world. Sin has creeped into every single corner. And we live in a present crisis. Existentially and personally. And God has taken the initiative in the person of Jesus to come into our world and to make the definitive statement that this brokenness will not last. I will turn it into something beautiful. And there's a second advent. And that is that history is moving and the scriptures make it clear that just as Jesus was here and he left, the scriptures tell us he's coming back again. And we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but there will come a day on a calendar when God says, enough, I'm going to make all things new. And he's in the process of doing that through his people now. But there will come a day when there will be no more brokenness and no more tears and no more questions and no more wrestling. And he will bring resolution to the brokenness in this world. And Paul says, live with an awareness of what time it is, where we are in this particular moment. Time is not meaningless. Time is not cyclical, just year after year, season after season. And friends, you know this. Time is not endless. We're all moving toward the end. The end of our lives, the end of the season of our life, and the end of history as we know it. And the sovereign God is in charge of that. And Paul says, join in, be aware, be alive in this moment. He says in verse 28, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Can I get an amen from someone married? <laughs> many troubles. And I want to spare you this. He says, now we shouldn't read that and say, oh, well, you single people, you don't, you don't have the troubles I have. Believe me, single people who are not married, single people who have been divorced, single people who've lost a spouse through death, they have a lot, a lot of troubles. So Paul's not separating us out. But in this present crisis, Paul says, yeah, just pause for a moment and think about this commitment commitment you're going to make toward marriage and family and children because this it brings a boatload of problems you haven't anticipated yet and he says he calls it this present crisis now Corinth 
was undergoing a famine that was creeping across the entire Roman Empire. And many of the Christians in this early fledgling church, they were poor. And this, this famine was a crisis. It was an economic crisis for them. And I thought about this. Paul wants us to gain a new perspective, to know what time it is, to live in the present with an understanding and an eye to the future. And here this economic crisis had afflicted them and it was causing them to ask questions about whether they should get married. I've been thinking about that a lot. In fact, I've talked to some smart financial people but the reality of our present crisis, you know, what, one, you know what one strand of that present crisis is today that is looming out here, that is afflicting single adults and their parents at times? School debt. And it's this mammoth monster that is just out there and the impact that that could have on our economy, on a family's economy. And I'm not qualified to talk any more about that other than the fact that it might cause a person who is thinking about getting married to say, wow, maybe I ought to pause for a moment and think through where I am in this historical moment, in this cultural climate, in light of the present crisis and the mountain of debt that I carry. So growing your spiritual discernment and gain a new perspective on whether marriage is a good choice for you. Good thing for parents to think about, for all of us who are married, and for single adults. The elites thought it would be more spiritual if they stayed celibate, even in marriage, and Paul agreed that singleness is a good thing. His bias was toward that, but he didn't agree with their reasons behind it. And he says in verse 28 that marriage and singleness are good options. He said, if you get married, you haven't sinned. If you stay single, he says you haven't sinned. Don't you love it when the Bible doesn't give you a black and white clear answer in the moment telling you, like a little magic ball, what to do? That's spiritual discernment. When I was a seminary student in graduate school, and I was not married yet, and I was walking with other students to my church history one final and of course, I'm stressed about it. I'm anxious. I've been studying, staying up all night. I have all my other classes and final exams and things to do and work. And I had many troubles in my life, but I was not married. And my professor, Dr. James Bradley, came up alongside me and started bantering with some questions. And I'm thinking, no, I'm about to flunk your test. I want to think about that right now. But he, he wanted to know about my life and my upbringing. And I I'd said that I was not yet married in answer to his question. And... Uh, I told him, I said, you know, I can't imagine doing seminary in graduate school and all of this work. I can't imagine doing that married. I'd be a terrible husband. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? When I was in graduate school, when I was going through seminary, I was married. And he said, I couldn't imagine doing graduate school without being married. So here you have it. That, that's what Paul is saying is that we have a journey and a calling and we're moving forward. So Paul says, in this moment, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Husbands, that's sort of tongue-in-cheek, okay? Don't take that literally. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. 
those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. Do you see that perspective? As if not engrossed in them. So I think Paul gives us a new perspective with some new priorities. My highest priority is my life in union with Jesus in community, whether I'm single or married. My life in union with Jesus in community. My identity as a son or daughter of the Father is more important than my marriage, my health, my career. Or my stuff. I will have an open handed relationship with this world, including my marriage. And I'll pay attention to the significance of this moment that I'm in, of every moment. And I'll lean into a strategic intentionality in this stage of my life right now, not pining away for what could be or what used to be. For both married and single people, our ultimate priority, according to Paul's teaching, Jesus commands, the narrative of Scripture is to join with Jesus in the transition to his kingdom in its fullness. That's our invitation. As fully alive human beings, in union with Jesus, joining him, in a justice adventure to undo that which had been broken. Anticipating and praying and waiting for that day when Jesus will come and will finish the work. You remember what we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our mission. And then I think Paul here touches on this idea of getting free from the idol of marriage. Paul says in verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. And he says in verse 35, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in, get this, undivided devotion to the Lord. Jesus has called you and me to freedom. Paul's words, all of Scripture, They're not intended to create anxiety in our lives, nor a stumbling block. But Paul says, they're here for your good. The will of God, the action of God, the intention of God is for your good. Always. Always for your good. His intentions are good. His actions are good. And we can receive that from him. But notice what he says earlier in verse 7 of chapter 7. Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul was single. He says, I think that'd be great for you. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. He's referring to the reality that marriage is a wonderful gift, and so is singleness. He's opening up the reality that God sometimes will give a person a calling to lifelong singleness. And it is good. It is a good 
option. Now, we live in a culture where the reality is the norm is that most people get married. And that norm may not always be helpful. For the young person that's trying to discern, well, do I have that gift? And, you know, I've often shared with young, single men and women who wonder, well, wait a minute, has God given me this calling or this curse? That's the way it feels? Will I ever get married? And I say, you know, if your heart's longing and desire, that you just feel like you are designed to get married, then it's likely you don't have that gift and you will probably get married. But right now, it's a gift. And he calls you, whether you're married or single, to live an undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 38, he who marries does right, he who does not marry does better. Marriage is a beautiful partnership, honored by God and requiring serious, lifelong commitment. But it, it can, it can't, my friends, in, in our culture, it can be turned into an idol. Marriage can end up being an idol. And let me try to explain what I mean by that. That oftentimes we present marriage as the solution to your singleness. The assumption that marriage, for you single people, marriage is the solution to your longing, to your loneliness. Marriage is the solution to uh, your, your, um, your angst about life. There's a fellow named Cutter Calloway, and he's written a provocative, very interesting book. It's called Breaking the Marriage Idol. And he, he makes a case that we have turned marriage into an idol, and he, he goes through the whole biblical narrative from the beginning to end and talking about marriage and singleness and unpacking it, and it's really rich. But he starts the book by doing this cultural analysis that Paul wants us to do, is to know where we're at, what's happening in our world in this moment in time. And this is how he opens the book. He, he kind of takes three examples from our culture that are like the ocean that the fish swim in that may not even be aware of the influence it has on us. The first example he gives are the, princess, the Disney princess movies. We've all grown up on those. Someday my prince will come has become a driving narrative in our culture. And you see in the princess movies, though they've kind of evolved over the decades, and they lived happily ever after. Anyone married for 18 months will tell you, I'm not really sure it, it goes exactly that way. But the influence of that franchise on the modern imagination that has fueled little girls' hearts and the role of young men and the ideal for the fulfillment of my life is to live out the Disney narrative. The second example he gives us is Taylor Swift. And he's not picking on Taylor Swift. I mean, like catchy songs, beautiful songs. They're like fun. You can memorize these songs. But as you've watched Taylor Swift grow up from being, you know, the naive, you know, 15-year-old living out the princess movies to to getting a little bit older and a little bit edgier in order, you know, you got to keep your career. And, and, and I love and adore Taylor Swift, but, but now moved into, you know, sort of like um, uh, serial monogamous sexuality, you know, is, is sort of the, the, the route that she has taken us. And the third example that Callaway gives us is The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. 
I mean, incredibly popular, and we watch it, and we consume, and we wait, and we wonder, and we laugh, and we go, oh, no, I can't believe it. And, but what is the influence that it has on our imagination, our thoughts about life? And really, that whole process is the ultimate end game is romantic sex. It's what it comes down to. And you take those three together, and you have to ask the question, do we build our theology and understanding of marriage off those three, or what Paul says in this passage, or what God says in all of the scripture? That's why spiritual discernment is so important. So I just want to end with pushing on some things. I've been thinking about that this text is push me on, that our staff talk about a lot, that we as a church need to talk more about. And I would, again, I would love to talk on and on, but I'm just going to throw them out there like hand grenades. <laughs> in the church, we often communicate in our language and the way we structure our lives and ministries. We communicate to single people that you haven't fully arrived until you're married. And this text is telling me that's a false narrative. That Paul says, no, you as a single person in relationship with Jesus, in community, you're in a beautiful place. So what kind of language? How does it, how does it leak out in invitations to parties and weddings and in groupings and the way we talk about marriage, this beautiful thing called marriage and children. What does that mean for the single person? We have a lot to learn from you single people in helping to sensitize us. Here's another idea. I think as a pastor over the years, I feel like we put more weight onto marriage than it was designed to bear. We've made it an idol. And we've created this idea and this, this um, solution that marriage will provide that is too weighty for the marriage. We have put expectations on our spouses that they cannot fulfill. I'm not an expert in this, but I know some of that feeds into why marriages don't last, why they break apart, is our expectations Someday my prince will come, and now you've come, and I'm supposed to live happily ever after. And poopy diapers are not happy. <laughs> Sexual integrity. We need to talk about that. And I'm so appreciative of these interns of Matt, Tommy, Kathy, student ministries, you tied small group leaders and rush small group leaders and the really nitty gritty, very important, vital conversations that you have in the confidentiality of those small groups and those one-on-one -on -one relationships about sexual purity and integrity. But we gotta ask the question, what really is sexual purity? And we need to wrestle with what does forgiveness look like? And yes, we want to honor one another. We want to honor our commitments. We want to honor our future spouses if that's in our future. 
But we've created a scenario where in Paul's day, the young girl turned 14, hit puberty, and bam, she was married and having babies. And now our average marriage age has grown later and later and later. And we have this massive chasm between 13 and 28. Bottle it up. Don't think about it. Say no. And the Bible honors sexual purity. And we got to wrestle with how, how, how do we do that? And what does forgiveness look like in the midst of that? And so I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> no, I'll say one more thing. If you look at verse 36 to 38, Paul holds true that a person could be single, committed to Jesus, and sexually pure. It can be done. And forgiveness is possible. Okay, here's another one. I think we as a church need to just at least talk about and wrestle with what does it mean for a same-sex attracted person who loves Jesus and wants to be sexually pure and part of our church family? And what is it like for them to be with us? And our attitudes about homosexuality and a person that, that... desires to follow Jesus and is wrestling with their own sexual identity. And this is fraught with so many conversations and so many landmines. So there you have it. We need to talk about it. And this idea, uh, marriage is beautiful. And marriage is held up as a wonderful ideal. So is singleness. Um. And maybe the princess idea, it shows the wedding and they live heavily ever after. We have built a, a, a huge economy around weddings and the party. And we spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And most couples will take some time to do some preparation. But we don't take that preparation seriously enough as a church community. And we ought to invest time with trained people to deal with our stuff, the stuff we're going to bring into that relationship and work it out. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 would say, in light of the present crisis of what's going on in your life, you need to consider hitting the pause button and doing some work before you get married. And the last thing I'm going to say is, Todd last week talked about We're a family. The church is a family. And we need to take more seriously what it means to be the church as a family. Paul says, brothers and sisters, we are all brothers and sisters. Whether married or single, whether parent or child, we are all each other's siblings with God as our father. And what does it mean for us to embrace one another, whether we're married or single, but especially people who are single or widowed or divorced, that we embrace them, that they're our brothers and sisters. And we're not defined by our marriages. We're defined by our relationship with Jesus and our love for one another. I read two blog posts. One was titled, Single, Not Solitary. You're my brother. You're my sister. We're a family. And the other one was, just because you are celibate doesn't make you single. Because we're connected. We love each other. And we'll face the troubles.
we'll face them together. So, come on up. We're going to go to the Lord's table. And our identity is as a child of the Father. And we go with brothers and sisters. So God loves you so much. God's grace to you. God's peace in whatever stage of life you're in. He's with you. And his plan for your life is good.